The first Thursday of November is never Election Day. But the third installment of this 11th month does play that role every several years or so. One time was in 1953. The next time will be in 2026, a time that will arrive whether it's been prepared for or not. Between now and then, the goal is to have as many installments of Charlottesville Community Engagement as possible to help keep track of the trivial, the travails, the triumphs, and the travesties. I'm your host, Sean Tubbs. On today's show, Albemarle supervisors approve a second rezoning for Habitat for Humanity of Greater Charlottesville's rezoning at Southwood. A brief look at previous attempts to end the practice of daylight saving time, which ends early Sunday morning. The Charlottesville School Board will meet today and will consider a bonus payment for employees. The Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission will receive the almost final regional transit vision plan tonight, and the two candidates for the 5th Congressional District answer a question about Chambers of Commerce in the district on the role that defense plays in the local economy. In today's first subscriber-supported public service announcement, want to learn how to reduce the amount of chemicals used to treat your lawn and garden? The Piedmont Master Gardeners are teaming up with the Virginia Cooperative Extension to offer a class on Saturday, November 19th at 2 p.m. at Trinity Episcopal Church on Preston Avenue. The class will introduce an approach known as Integrated Pest Management as a practical alternative to chemicals in the landscape. It will also look at the basic issues with commonly used insecticides, herbicides, and synthetic fertilizers, and will cover best practices for lawns, edible gardens, and ornamental gardens. Space is limited. To reserve a place in the class, register at piedmontmastergardeners.org events. Registration closes at 5 p.m. on November 18th. After taking a six-week pause, the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors has approved a rezoning for the second phase of Habitat for Humanity of Greater Charlottesville's redevelopment of the Southwood Mobile Home Park. Here's Rebecca Ragsdale, a planning manager in Albemarle County. Phase two would include a minimum of 527 residential units up to a maximum of 1,000 units. Ragsdale said a minimum of 227 units would be required to be rented or sold below market to eligible households, but there could be more depending on build-out. There is a maximum non-residential non um, component of up to 60,000 square feet, and there is a commitment to a minimum of 10,000 square feet, and that provides for the neighborhood center that's recommended in the master plan. Supervisors were close to a vote on September 22nd after a public hearing but wanted certainty about the cost that Habitat will receive from Albemarle for a seven-acre school, as well as the details. Albemarle has until July 1, 2027 to decide if it wants to purchase the property for a cost not to exceed 680000 If it's not sold, it may be developed under the uses that per are permitted in the Code of Development, which includes, which could include affordable units. If residential does end up on that site, 20 units must be designated as affordable. Charles Rapp, the deputy director of the Department of Community Development, told supervisors about various transportation improvements that will be made on Old Lynchburg Road and 5th Street Extended 
as well as Southwood's primary thoroughfare. Hickory Street is currently a substandard road. It, it lacks uh, stormwater management infrastructure. It doesn't have sidewalks, doesn't have curb and gutter, it doesn't have on-street parking, and the paving along that road in multiple locations is severely deteriorated and in need of some uh, attention. Rapp said the county could apply for grants to help pay for that work jointly with Habitat for Humanity of Greater Charlottesville, or possibly go through Virginia Department of Transportation's revenue sharing program. Other transportation solutions in the area could include a road diet on Old Lynchburg Road that would replace vehicular lanes with a shared use path. The vote to approve was unanimous. Tomorrow, the Albemarle Board of Supervisors will meet with legislators to discuss potential legislation for the 2023 General Assembly. On Saturday night, most of the United States will turn back clocks to mark the end of daylight saving time. Albemarle's legislative wish list does not include a request to end the practice, nor has the topic been discussed on the legislative agendas of any of the 24 localities in the 5th District. However, legislation has been filed in the past to end Virginia's participation in the practice, which began in 1918 with the Federal Standard Time Act as a wartime cost savings measure. The practice dropped a year later, but became permanent again with the Uniform Time Act of 1966. Delegate Nicholas Freitas, a Republican from the 30th House District, filed a bill earlier this year that would have disconnected Virginia from the federal requirement, but it died in a General Laws subcommittee on February 3rd. Another bill in 2022 sought to direct the Virginia Secretary of Commerce and Trade to study the effects of daylight saving time, but that was also left in committee. That also happened in 2019 and in 2021. A 2018 bill sought to have the Joint Legislative Audit and Review Commission, or JLARC, review the effects. That legislation also died in committee. Will it come back again this year? Will there be at least a study? What do you think? How is your life affected by the twice-annual shift in clocks? Leave a comment in the comment section below. There were two oversights in this week's Week Ahead newsletter. First, the Charlottesville School Board will meet today at 5 p.m. in the Booker T. Reeves Media Center at Charlottesville High School at 1400 Melbourne Road. You can register to participate via Zoom or watch along on Facebook. You can register to participate via Zoom or watch along on Facebook. Items on the agenda include an allocation from the state for a one-time bonus that comes from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. Charlottesville gets $414,603.21 for the effort and is kicking in funding of its own. Here's a section from the agenda item. Charlottesville City Schools has 793.32 full-time equivalent instructional and support positions, including custodial and nutrition workers. The total cost of the one-time bonus payment is $854,009. Full-time workers would get $1,000, and those who work fewer hours would get paid a lower bonus based on their workload. There will also be an update on pupil transportation. As of October 27th, there were eight regular drivers and two leads, with four drivers in training. On November 9th, a new bus route will start, which will allow the waitlist for students to be reduced. 
The second meeting today is that of the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission, which meets in person at 7 p.m. at the Water Street Center in downtown Charlottesville. One item on the agenda is a presentation on design work for the Zion Crossroads Gateway Plan, as well as recommended transportation improvements created as part of a small area plan. Another is the Regional Transit Vision Plan, which I wrote up in yesterday's newsletter. That story was based on the plan's presentation at the October 27, 2022 meeting of the Regional Transit Partnership that's chaired by Albemarle Supervisor Diantha McKeel. We're not making a decision on this money and what we're doing right now in the next month or two. <laughs> we have the ongoing governance study that's going to be playing out over the next year. That will determine um, the, the players at the table who wants to participate. Um, we have to figure out yet what counties want to actually participate and how that the governance, what the governance would actually look like. McKeel welcomed the presence of Delegate Sally Hudson and Senator Cree Deeds at that partnership meeting and said the word about the transit vision plan needs to get out to other representatives in the General Assembly for this area. Legislative action will be needed for additional tax powers to pay for expanded transit. That regional transit partnership meeting ended with some updates from transit providers. Jaunt has an alternative fuel advisory committee that last met on September 22nd. There are representatives from the University Transit Service, but none from Charlottesville Area Transit. There is a member of the CAT Advisory Board on the Jaunt panel. The CAT Advisory Board has not met for at least two years. Charlottesville Area Transit still seeks to recruit new drivers and hope an increase in hourly pay will help. There was no update on changes to cat roads that are on hold until enough drivers are hired. Stay tuned. That's what Charlottesville Community Engagement is here for. You are listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement and in today's second subscriber-supported shout-out, UVA Lifetime Learning, Office of Engagement, has an event this Saturday morning that provides an expert view on a potential future. Will robots displace workers? Does automation mean the end of work as we know it? Jennifer Baer, Associate Dean of Social Science and Professor of Sociology, will be on hand to answer those questions at Alumni Hall at 10 a.m. for a free event. While much of the discussion about the future of work centers on technological innovations, changes in the way work is organized may ultimately prove more consequential for the well-being of workers, particularly in developing countries. Bayer's talk explores the causes and consequences of changes in the world of work through a focus on global supply chains. Register for this informative event on Eventbrite. And thank you to Lifetime Learning for this shout out. We are so very close to the election, and many people have already cast their ballots. Many more will do so as early in-person voting, and they have until Saturday at 5 p.m. to do that. In our part of Virginia, the main item on the ballot this year are elections of the U.S. House of Representatives. In October, the Chambers of Commerce in Charlottesville, Lynchburg, and Danville invited the two people seeking election to the 5th District to have a virtual conversation. Republican Bob Good and Democrat Josh Thronberg sat down in two separate chats, but this newsletter and podcast puts them together. Yesterday's version presented the opening statements, but now we'll get into the questions. 
Here's Barry Butler, the Director of Government Relations for the Lynchburg Regional Business Alliance. Uh, Areas that we're going to be covering today, national defense, regulation and taxation, uh, workforce development, economic development, uh, public safety and public health. We won't get to all of those for today, but we'll just get to national defense. Here's Nick DiGiorgio, a financial advisor with United Bank, who is on the defense committees for both the Lynchburg Regional Business Alliance and the Charlottesville Regional Chamber of Commerce. National security and defense spending by the federal government are a massive part of Virginia's overall economy. While to a lesser degree than along Virginia's Golden Crescent, the DOD has significant investments up and down the US-29 corridor. For example, in the Charlottesville region, more than 4,500 workers are employed by the U.S. Army National Guard and Ground Intelligence Center, the U.S. Department of Defense Intelligence Agencies, and the private defense and intelligence contractors, which represents an estimated $1 billion in annual local payroll. Global leaders in nuclear energy and manufacturing, such as BWXT, which produces small modular nuclear reactors for the submarine fleets, and Framatone call Lynchburg the, the call Lynchburg region home. Recently, the United States Navy launched an additive manufacturing center of excellence at the Danville's Institute of Advanced Learning and Research and a larger training facility to be built nearby. National Defense Authorization Acts come up for renewal each year. Tell us about some of the ways you would protect that federal investment in our local economy and what steps you would take to support this large sector of our economy. Bob Good went first yesterday, so let's hear first from Democrat Josh Throneberg. The written version just features some of the highlights, but the audio contains the whole response. You are also encouraged to watch the videos with links below. These are some longer sound bites than we're used to on Charlottesville Community Engagement. Let's start with the answer from candidate Throneberg. I attended, there was a, a joint kind of DOD luncheon that we had here in Charlottesville a few months ago that really was laying out kind of the relationship between um, some of those those entities and the local economy. And, and we heard a lot of the I mean, really incredible numbers in terms of the the employment and the um, local kind of economic uh, importance of those groups. And I think what I can say is that, um, number one, I will certainly work to to have a full understanding of those things, To rec- and, I, and I already have begun to do that, right, to recognize their importance, their value, both here in Charlottesville, but across the district, um, to to try and make sure that we protect those. We, we want to um, create the kind of environment that brings opportunity into the district the kind of opportunity that uh, not only has, you know, jobs and and that, but, you know, where we have great schools, where families want to move here, where there's uh, affordable housing and they feel like this is a place that they can call home. So I think I'm sure as all of you are very, very much aware, um, part of supporting and maintaining that great work is also having the kinds of communities that are going to draw great folks in who want to work in those spaces. Um, and so there's a, there's that kind of bigger piece that I, I want to make sure we see the ties between as a, as a legislator, it's important for us to have great housing and great schools and all those things so that folks come in and then to support and encourage uh, the, the kinds of the incredible investment that we kind of have at the level that you're talking about. So that's good. I think my, you know, my, 
big what what if you've ever seen my logo or if you've ever heard me talk um my thing is compassion and common sense that's the framework through which i try to look at all things and certainly um when you look at the economic investment of these groups in in charlottesville and down all the way through the district um there's we have a huge reliance on that. And so I want to make sure that we protect that, we preserve it and offer opportunities for it to grow and increase, right? If there are, you know, we have some incredible, especially Pennsylvania County, we have some uh, opportunities to to bring in more and more opportunity for creating jobs. We've got a, a ready site down there that I think can put up to six or 7,000 workers if we have the right facility. And so um, I think with those are the kinds of opportunities that we want to, we want to push. So I think I'd be a I think I'd be an advocate and a uh, both a protector and preserver, but someone who wants to increase it as well over time. When this question was asked of Congressman Good, the Chambers of Commerce added to the question. Let's skip ahead to that part. Um, Congressman Good, um, in the past, you had voted against the annual National Defense Authorization Act. Tell us about some of the ways you are protecting the federal investment in our local economy. And what steps will you be taking in the future to support the large sector of our, our economy? Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for mentioning the uh, Danville facility, industrial, I'm sorry, the uh, Center for uh, Innovative IALR down there in Danville. I've been down there multiple times, but down there just recently for the ribbon cutting on the new CMA that's opening down there, have spoken at their graduation, have been there many times. Frankly, what's happening in Danville on Southside is a model for the rest of Southside Virginia. You know, lots of parts of Virginia call themselves Southside, but a model for the rural parts of Virginia and certainly the 5th District or those areas that have suffered some economic depression. The way Danville has come together at the local level and everyone has partnered together, the, 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 the reemergence of Daniel is really wonderful to see. And I'm so proud of what's going on down there in Danville, Pennsylvania. I've been uh, just privileged to be part of that, to encourage that, to support that any ways that I can. But to speak uh, to the National Defense Authorization Act and defense spending in general, let me frame it again, because this must always frame every discussion that we have about spending on the federal level. And some people don't like this. And sometimes this is not popular. Some people don't want to hear the truth on this. But the fact is we have $31 trillion in national debt. That is $90,000 per citizen. It's about $250,000 per taxpayer, meaning those who are actually paying taxes. Uh, we are running at the record deficit levels. In other words, increasing the national debt like we never have before. Our debt, again, versus our GDP is the highest it's been since World War II. However, unlike the World War II generation, we're not in any position to pay off our debt. We're making no real serious efforts to pay off our debt as the World War II generation did. The greatest generation did that. On the current trajectory, I'm on the budget committee. Uh, the current trajectory without any new massive increased spending like we saw during the pandemic, we're on track in the next 30 years to be $131 trillion in national debt. 131 trillion to go from 31 trillion to 131 trillion in the next 30 years. Right now, we pay about 500 billion dollars a year just to service the debt. That's just interest on the debt without touching the principal. And that's before the new increased interest rates begin to take their full effect. In the next 20 to 30 years, that's going to go to over to five to six trillion dollars a year just to service the debt. Far more to service the debt than our total. Uh, budget is uh, currently. So everything that we do has to be framed within that context. And we have to be reminded of that. The federal government has no money. 
For that matter, government has money. Government only has money that it takes from its citizens. Now, to your point about national defense, national defense issues and national defense spending should be based upon national security, military readiness, military effectiveness, not to it should not be made in the interest of you know, spending or, or investment in a community or jobs in a community, even as primary. It's about the national security. It's about national defense. It's not about special interest groups or somebody's district where they have spending on national defense that benefits them from politically. It's got to be based on national defense, national security, American national security interests first. has to be. The National Defense Authorization Act, which is about $800 billion, I voted against it uh, two or three times now, each time it's come up. It's going to come up again. The Senate is debating that this week. And I'm actually part of a letter that I just sent with my uh, colleagues in the House Freedom Caucus to Senator McCarthy and uh, Representative, uh, I'm sorry, Senator McConnell and, and, and Leader McCarthy saying all Republicans should oppose the NDAA in its current form. All Republicans should. The Democrats cannot pass their spending bill without Republican votes. They can't do it. It is a rare moment of Republican opportunity where we have leverage to force a good bill because they cannot pass it without us. The most recent time that we voted on it back in July, 39 Democrats voted against it. You all probably know there's 220, I think the number is, uh, Democrats in the House. If you take 39 away, that's 181. They need 218. And the letter that we sent says, no Republican should vote for the NDAA in its current form so that we can force a clean bill that prioritizes national security, national defense, and eliminates all the bad stuff. Number one, number one in that was we need to end the vaccine mandates on our troops. We have dismissed or discharged some 100,000 troops because they didn't get a vaccine they didn't want or didn't need. 25-year-old healthy individuals who've had COVID many times over, like we all have by now, have natural immunity or are not susceptible. 45-year-olds nearing retirement who got discharged. I've had scores of them reach out to me personally, begging me for help. It's an egregious violation of our freedoms and our military readiness that we're kicking out members of our military at a time, by the way, when we're reaching about 40 to 50% of our recruitment goals for all the branches. We are also having the academies reach out to us because they're not getting the applications they used to get. And they're, they're just putting out word to us that applications are way down uh, and they desperately need uh, new individuals to come to the academies, which, as you might imagine, is going to compromise quantity as well as quality. With their feet, the American people are saying they have concerns about this commander in chief, this military leadership. And what we're asking for in the NDAA is, again, to reverse the vaccine mandate immediately and restore back uh, to the military with all benefits, all compensation, those who were discharged improperly because of the vaccine, number one. Number two, we need to eliminate everything in the NDAA that has to do with woke ideology, critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion that has nothing to do with military readiness, radical transgender policies, you know, joint, you know, bathrooms and things for transgender. We need to eliminate all of that military funding because it has no place in our military to make us more effective to, to, to deter wars or to win wars if necessary. Same thing on the climate environmental extremism that's in the military. 
we've got in there converting our military to electric vehicles. Think about that in the theater of war, that we would have electric vehicles for our military. We're, we're, we've got in there requiring our planes to fly on sustainable fuel, which costs two or three times as much. Has nothing to do with military readiness. The president told the military that the greatest threat to the country when he first got inaugurated was climate extremism or climate environmental issues. I can only imagine this administration, when Putin invaded Ukraine, said, how can they do that without considering the climate implications? John Kerry went hat in hand, pleading uh, with the, the Russians not to invade Ukraine because of the climate. How embarrassing to the United States to show the weakness that we did with that. And of course, Putin didn't care. General Lloyd Austin, when he was put in place as the Secretary of Defense, he told the military that, and, and we were told that we needed him. He said the greatest threat to the military was white supremacy and racism in the ranks. That is a lie to, to demonize our military, to disparage our military like that. It's just not true. And then what they're doing now is they're purging conservatives, patriots, Trump, Trump supporters out of the military. We are weakening our military. I say it, we're wussifying and wokeifying our military. It is a, it's a disaster what we're doing. And we, that all needs to be taken out of the defense bill. Finally, we also need an inspector general investigation to be an inspector general to be appointed to investigate the U.S. involvement in Ukraine, how that money is being spent, how it's being utilized, what the U.S. is doing behind the scenes in terms of supporting Ukraine in a way the American people may not know about that in terms of escalating our involvement in that war as we sit on the brink of nuclear war, according to the president and according to some in his administration. So I will proudly vote against the NDA in its current form, and I am loudly exhorting my Republican colleagues to do the same so we can defeat it and force a good, clean defense bill that truly puts military readiness at the forefront. The full responses from both candidates are in the audio, and you can watch all of the videos in links in the newsletter. In the next newsletter, we'll have at least one more answer. Election day is coming up, and... This is information that voters could probably use. But that's it for the end of this episode, and it's another long one in terms of runtime and word length, but we're now at the end of it. Thank you to everyone who has made it to this point, and if you didn't, that's okay too. I'm not going to insult you or anything. There's always a lot in these installments, and I know that your time is limited. My time is mostly spent producing this program, as often as I can because I know there are a lot of people who want to know what's happening, and this is my attempt to capture as much as I can. About one in four of you are contributing financially, most of you with a paid Substack subscription. Every single penny helps to cover my time and effort. And some of that effort is invested in things like transcriptions, which is making those congressional chamber chats much easier to produce. An added bonus is that Ting will match the initial payment if you decide to contribute $5 a month, $50 a year, or $200 a year through Substack. You'll get the occasional first look at some content, and you will know that you're helping me write and produce a great amount of material each and every week. And even if you don't sign up for a paid subscription to this newsletter, Ting still wants your business. And if you sign up through a link in the newsletter, you will get a free installation, a $75 gift card to the downtown mall, and a second month for free. Just enter the promo code COMMUNITY. Thanks today to Bree Luck of Charlottesville, 
for providing a soundbite for this podcast version. In return, her shout-out to Nonprofit is for Live Arts, as well as the Blue Ridge Abortion Fund. What's next? Tomorrow's installment, of course. Thanks for being here, and let me know what else you think might be missing. And bonus points if iambic pentameter is used. I'm Sean Tubbs. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon, and goodbye!